0: Yeah, so there was a little bit of panic in me on Friday uh, initially I did think I would cover all 14 verses today and then uh, had to call Gary and say, hey, that's not going to happen. Um, and it, it's 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 you know, it, it's really interesting to me uh, as I read various commentaries uh, as we we're going through Romans and uh, two times in a row. uh Separate commentary said, this is the most difficult passage in Romans. And I'm like, really? <laughs> what about, you know, Romans 9, but this is most difficult. And then I I, I was uh, uh, listening to a talk by Sinclair Ferguson. Um, and he said that a, a man uh, walked up to Martin Lloyd-Jones and asked him, when are you going to preach through Romans? And he said, when I can understand Romans 6. Uh, and so uh, uh, there has not been enough wrestling, uh, but... Um, so and I don't know how long we'll be here, just to be honest, Um, but we we might be here for a while, but but it'll be good. So today we're going to jump into something um, that I just think is one of the greatest, if not the greatest truth in the life of a believer. As we're flowing through Romans, Paul, as he gets here to Romans chapter six, he, he really unpacks what his what we've. Called rightfully, our union with Christ, and uh, this is just—it's deep, it's great, and I I think we spend our lifetime really unpacking what it means to be united with Christ. This is not something that you're going to get in a four or eight-part series, or by reading a book, or by listening to sermons. This is a journey of a lifetime. Uh, I had a professor in seminary uh, who was who was my mentor. His name was Dr. Eric Johnson, and he was teaching about our union with Christ and uh how that helped in counseling and uh he it was very interesting uh although he was a uh, counseling and psychology professor very much a theologian uh and so he talked about Paul and Paul's phrase of being in Christ and that Paul just Throughout all of his writings and it's just everywhere when you read Paul, this whole idea and this label of being in Christ. And I'll never forget, it's been burned in my head, is that uh, Dr. Johnson would often say when we read this in Paul, it's really as if Paul is saying, I'm in Christ, Paul in Christ, that he so defined who he was and so defined everything about him That it's how he talked about himself. It's how he explained himself. And and we know this, right? I mean, what does Paul say about his worldly accomplishments? Compared to Christ, it's it's nothing. What does Paul say about the works that he has done and the work that he does compared to what it means to be in Christ? That it's nothing. It is the most important thing. Thing about us, it is the defining thing about being a Christian, is that we are in Christ. And our text this morning, uh, the way that I'm kind of thinking about this, is that uh, our text this morning has kind of taken us to the base of a mountain, Um, and and not like a mountain, uh, not like Lookout Mountain or Signal Mountain. Uh, You know, these are uh, people from other parts of the country would call these hills um i was i was speaking with a a young man the other day who was going out to denver who had gone out to denver and come back and was just reveling uh about seeing the rockies and uh, was just blown away as i was the first time i went out there you can see the rocky mountains from really far away and you think oh i'm right there but it takes forever to get there and then you get to the base of these mountains and i can't even imagine can't even imagine being at some of the world's highest peaks and so I think as we begin to study today and as we look into our text that that my assumption is is that this kind of takes us to the base of the mountain and we'll spend our the whole rest of our life and really unpacking this so as we jump into the text this morning I do want to say a few words about the structure here Um, because I think it's important for, for us to interpret these passages right I think we need to get the structure down. If you were to read chapter six and seven, chapter six and seven um, are kind of broken up into little sections where these questions are asked, like the question we had this morning. What then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? So that you kind of get these little questions that are scattered throughout there. And all of these questions flow out of chapter five, particularly verses 20 and 21. So let's read these verses again. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus, our Lord. And so within those two verses, you get the themes of the questions that are asked in six and seven. Does that make sense? And so what we have as we look at this, um, as I look at this, one of the things that I that, that I think is that. Really, I think chapters six and seven are almost a parenthesis in Paul's thought. And Paul does this quite a bit. Let me explain what I mean to you. Let me read six and seven let me read twenty and twenty-one again, and then let me jump to chapter eight and see watch this flow. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see how that could flow just naturally right out of that. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, took some time and stopped and paused. And wanted to cover a couple of things to make sure that we understand what's going on here. And there were some points that he wanted us to get. So... Another way of saying this, another way of looking at this structure, which I find helpful, is that, that these verses, it's a continuation of what we saw in chapter 5. And if you remember in chapter 5, we were looking at the results of justification by faith. Five one. therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we talked about hope and we talked about security. And if we get into chapter 8, we're still talking about the results of justification, which end in Glorification. And so we have this beautiful picture that Paul is unpacking, and then he stops here in chapter 6 because I think if we look at justification by faith, and we're not going to go all the way back into that, we've taught a lot on that in recent months and even probably even a year, but I think what you get and what you begin to understand is that if you truly understand what it means to be justified by faith, A natural question arises. And it's been this way throughout all of church history. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that when a preacher truly preaches justification by faith, this question in chapter 6 pops up. And what he meant by that is when we truly are preaching or understanding that you and I are made right in the sight of God based on nothing but faith alone, through grace alone, when we truly understand the the depths of what that means, the thought of what that means, that our works don't gain us any merit at all, and we can't add anything into our acceptance uh, into, into Christ as far as salvation goes. When we truly understand that, I think two things naturally spring up within us. One good and the other not so good. The the one that's good is this, is that we become so overwhelmed by how great the grace of God is. That we want to see more and more and more of it in our life. I think the other thing that pops up is this, when we truly understand what gives us our position before the God of the universe and we truly understand as Paul begins to unpack, as Paul unpacked in chapter 5 about the security of a believer, then we naturally ask the question, okay, well, if I'm justified by faith, if my standing before God is based on grace through faith alone, then I can just continue to sin. And that's the reason for the question. And what is awesome to me <laughs> What is awesome to me is is not just the question. Not just the question, but the answer. So the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And and what's amazing to me is look at the answer. We really get the answer in verse two and then he unpacks it in the next verses ahead. But look at this answer. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And the main point here is this. The main point is, if you have died to sin, you will not still live in sin. Something has happened to you that has changed you and you will not continue to live in sin. Now, I want to point out just a couple of things real quick. Uh, and these verses, you know, goodness, these verses are just packed with truths and with um, things in the grammar and things in the wording that we could just unpack forever. And so we're not going to get into everything. But there are a couple of things, especially here right at the beginning, that I want to make sure that we get. And the first one is, is in verse 2. If you look at that word, uh, and hopefully your translation reads something like this. How shall we who died to sin? That word died is in the, the aorist. And people who are much smarter than I am uh, say that they that is a historic aorist. It's something that has happened. It has been done. It is an action that has been completed in the past. And not only is that the tense of this word uh, of the word died here, but throughout these verses, we see this word again and again. Look at seven, eight and ten. Same tense Same word. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. And then look at verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And the point here, the point here is that if we are a believer, if we have put our faith in the work of Jesus we have died to sin. We are not dying to sin. It is finished, as we sang this morning. It is over. It, it, we, we have died to that. And you may say, well, we're going to get to the question that you're probably floating around in your head. Because most of you this morning sinned or are sinning right now. <laughs> we're going to get to that question in a minute. But but what I want you to understand is when we look at this and when we look at the tense and as we look at how Paul wrote this, he is saying there has been a proclamation. There has been a death, not that we are dying, that we died. And this goes back to what Paul was talking about in chapter five, which permeates these verses. And it's this in Adam. We are all corrupted. But thanks be to God in Jesus We have all died. We have all died and we have died to sin. Now let's continue forward and and look at the importance of this dying. So, So follow me in these next two verses. So it says, may it never be. We, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know? So he's explaining to us how we have died to sin. Or do you not know? that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus has been have been baptized into His death. So, what it's pointing here is our union with Christ, that those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus are baptized into His death. This is the death. We have died to sin. Therefore, so notice, therefore, so you've died with Jesus, therefore, not only have you died with Him, But you have been buried with him through baptism unto death. So here's the argument. Paul's unfolding. You died with Christ. And through baptism, not only did you die with Christ, but you have been buried with Christ. And not only have you been buried with Christ, but look, hopefully your text says something like this. So that. So here's the purpose. Here's the purpose. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father. This is so rich. As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so so we, too, might walk in the newness of life. Do you see the argument? So the argument is this. We have died to sin. But not only that, but through our union with Christ, we were we died to sin. We were buried and we have been raised with Christ and in our risen nature, raised with Christ, in our union with him, we are raised to walk in the newness of life. and the rest of these verses, unpack it let 's pray no, kind of, <laughs> but there 's more to say so so I want to walk through some of these things, and we 'll see how far we get this morning. But but I'm hoping one of the things that you asked and one of the questions that's been asked throughout the centuries and there have been denominational splits over the things in verse three. But I think it's important that we understand it. We're not going to go all the way into it. But what in the world does Paul mean by we've been baptized with Christ into his death? Why does he use this wording? You know, are we talking about when we get dunked in the tank that? something mystical happens at that point that brings us into that and and I don't think so and I think we don't we can go to other places in the new testament but I think right here in Paul's writing Paul unpacks for us what he means by some of this mysterious language and and one of the things we have to know in interpreting this is this in the first century in the first century if you were a Christian you had been baptized right We see all these examples of somebody making a profession for Christ and they're like, oh, let's find some water. Let's dunk them. I know I'm probably stepping on toes by using that language. That's the Baptist in me. I've got to get better with that. But it's in this text. Um, But 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 so you understand what I mean. So in the first century, in some ways. Being a Christian and being baptized were synonymous. And so I think Paul is kind of using that language here, but he's using it in a deeper fashion. We talk about baptism as an outward sign of what's happened inwardly. And if we, if we push this a little further and if we look at the Bible, if you look at what the Bible tells us, baptism is really a proclamation. It's a proclamation to the world that something has happened to me. I am a new person. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, and this, this just rings home with me, and you'll see why in two seconds. Sinclair Ferguson says that it's, it's almost like a renaming ceremony. And I think about if any of you have, uh, and I know we've got several families in here, the, the Rogers and... Graves and many other of you who have adopted a child. One of the things that happens when you adopt a child is that they get a new name. They get a new last name. Uh, and, you know, when we adopted Flannery, that was not her birth name. And uh, it was very important for us that so Flannery uh, is a family name on Casey's side of the family, her maternal grandmother's last name. Got that right. Gail is a family name. Casey's middle name is Gail. It's a family name. And then the last name Belva is my last name, right? And it was important to us when we adopted that little girl, it was important for us to give her a name that was so entrenched in who we are and who our families are as people Because we want her to know that she is accepted in full. She is ours. She is part of a new family. In baptism, baptism is the demonstration of you are new. You are part of a new family. You no longer are in the lineage of the first Adam, but you have been adopted into the family of God through your union with Jesus, you have been baptized into this family. And the key to unlocking this, the interpret to unlocking this interpretively is the wording in verse three. Notice this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus? So here's. Again, my uh, Southern Baptist roots coming out, so forgive me. But the word baptized means to be put under or submerged. And so a more literal immersed, a more literal reading of this text could say you who are immersed into Christ Jesus. Now, let that one sink into your noodle for a little while. That when you put your faith in Jesus. You are immersed into Christ Jesus. And when you are immersed into Christ Jesus. The death he died. You died. When he was raised. You were raised. And we walk according to the newness. Of life. This is a deep but wonderful and glorious truth. And the next verses begin to really unpack this a little more. Look at verse 5 and 6. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly, and see, this is a restatement. We shall also be be also certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this. Knowing this, our old self was crucified with him. In order that. So another purpose here. Our old self was crucified with him so that in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now what in the world does it mean. That our body of sin might be done away with. Again we're getting to the question. But you all are thinking or should be thinking. I sinned this morning. What does this mean that our body of sin. Has been done away with. And I think sometimes in Christian circles. We talk about this in too narrow of a focus. And what we what we talk about we talk about this passage and what we say is this. Is that our body of sin, meaning our pre-conversion self, was done away with. And so that we've got these kind of two chapters in our life. I like to think of it more like this. And I think it flows again out of chapter 5. That whole old sin nature that was born and wrought and existed In Adam. Is gone. It is done away with. Now something that adds. Credence to this. I just don't know if it's true or not. So Gary can correct me. uh, In our Monday morning correction services. Which sometimes involves a stick. No just kidding. It's never happened. (laughs) But I I have heard. that, that, That in the first century. That sometimes a punishment. For some. Some sins or some uh, uh, some wrongdoings were that you actually uh, that the punishment was so if you murdered someone or something that they would actually strap a corpse to your back and you would haul around that corpse until it was gone. Yeah, gross. But think about that for a minute. So let's say it's true or not true. I love the imagery. Because what is being said here is that old body of sin, which leads to death, is gone. You are freed. Sin no longer has mastery over you. Sin does not reign over you anymore. You are dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. I just love that imagery. The key here is that it's finished. It is forgiven and it is over. So let's look at 7 through 10. It's just restating some of these truths. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again... Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And what these verses are saying is that we are united in Christ. And so when it says he is freed, we, brother and sister in the Lord, you are freed from sin. It is dead. It is over. You have a new identity your union with Christ makes you a new person and enables you to walk into the newness of life. And this is just a glorious, glorious truth. Now, come to the problem. But Lewis, you should have seen how ornery my wife was this morning. That's what most of us are thinking, right? My wife must not be a believer. No. Me. How angry I was this morning. Sin is still there. I'm fighting sin all the time. I hate it, but I'm not going to be dishonest with you. It's there. So what in the world is Paul talking about that sin is dead? That we have died to sin? And so let's look at what he is talking about. Let's jump in and look and define sin. Let's go back to chapter 5. We've done this before, so hopefully it's fresh on your brain. But let's go back to chapter 5 and look at a couple of things. Look in verse 17, how Paul is defining sin in this, in this instance. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned, notice that wording, that death reigned in 21. It says, so that as sin reigned in death, look at in chapter six, verse six, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be. Look at this language, slaves to sin in verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves? to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. Verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And then in 20 and 22, for when you were slaves of sin, and then verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. And then last one in verse 12, therefore, just as one man sinned, Help if I got the right chapter. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. And so an unhelpful reading of this text would be to say that because of Christ's death, I will never sin again. That is not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying, and this is vitally important And we will not get to all the implications today. But what Paul is saying is that because of our union with Christ, sin's mastery and its slavery over you has been defeated. In death, the punishment was paid. And in life, we have a choice. And so what we cannot say when we sin is that the devil made me do it. And if you come to my office and told me the devil made you do it, I will say he has no power over you if you're a believer. You chose sin. We also cannot say, I can't help it. Now, there are certain sins and certain sin patterns that are difficult that take a whole lot of time to uproot and and take fellowship. And we're going to talk about that sometime in the future because that's kind of what the second half of these verses are about, 10 through 14. We'll talk about that. And so I'm not saying that it's as simple as no. But what I am saying is you have the power to overcome based on your position in Christ. The power of sin has no power and reign over us. You cannot also not say, as I had a friend who used to say all the time. I had a, I'll never forget, I walked in on him one time and he was uh, on a business call and he was, he was just dog cussing somebody. If you don't know what that is, if you're a good old country boy, you can find a good old country boy and ask him what that means. And they'll tell you what that means. He was just giving this guy upside down the other. and He noticed I walked in. He hung up the phone and he said, oh, Lewis, yep. I know I probably shouldn't have done that, but I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's not who you are. It's not who you are. You are a child of God. That has been saved by grace. And you are a new creature. You are unified with Christ. You have a choice. So it means when we sin. When it happens. That it is us who is doing it. And we can overcome it now. The other big part of this is this. Because I think there's so many slippery slopes in these passages. Right. And uh, so you could waive the claim against me. So now, Lewis, you are saying then that you have bought into the Wesleyan doctrine of perfection, that there can be moments of perfection in your life that you can. And I don't believe that at all. And, and, And the reason I don't believe that is verse eight. Notice verse eight. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And you may say, Lewis, what does that mean? Again, in the tense and in the language, what it is saying is that if you have died with Christ, it has happened. A historical event that has happened, it says you shall in the future live with him. And I think what Paul is telling us and I think other places here in the book of Romans that we see is that Paul is telling us we will not be sinless until we get to heaven. This is the. Which you learn the first day in Bible school, I think, and the first day you get to seminary, they say. Have you learned about already not yet tension? (laughs) This is the already not yet. This is who you are in Christ, but it's not yet fulfilled the way it's going to be till you get to heaven. And so what this means is that as human beings not in heaven yet, we sin. We can say no, but we sin. It also means that we're tempted at times. Not only does it mean that we're tempted, but I want to point this out. It also means that it does not overpower us. So we still sin. We're still tempted, but it doesn't have to overpower us. And so what we're going to do in, in whenever the next time that we're together unless Gary chooses to do this next week, but I don't think he is because it's going to be a special Sunday. But what is going to happen is we're going to talk about how to fight sin. And I want to tell you something extremely interesting to me. It, I don't think there have been any if there have then This is the first major one. But Paul has not given us any real imperatives in this book until now. And it's almost like Paul needed to just unfold the gospel and make sure that his readers were understanding their position in Christ because it's only then that it's safe enough to say, do not. If he would have gone into that at any other point, there would have been a danger of flipping this on its head and us thinking, oh, I can work my way to salvation. Paul argues, and we'll get into this later. (laughs) Like I said, we could spend hours here together. Paul argues, and we'll get into this later, that our biggest tool in fighting sin is fighting from a place of victory and not fighting from a place of defeat. But that is for another day. So we don't continue in sin because that is not who we are. So that's the answer to the question. It's not who we are. And so if you are in sin and continuing to sin, there's one of two problems. Number one is that you're not a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, you are powerless over sin. And I hope we know from going through Romans 1 that doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could be or that you're always choosing the wrong thing, because that doesn't happen. There are many non-Christians this morning who got cut off by some of you coming here to church, and if they were as bad as they wanted to be, they would have ran you off the road and done bad things, right? It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. What it means is is that the power to choose to honor and to love God and the motivation in our actions being bringing glory to God does not exist in the non-believer, because that's what sin is—not loving God supremely and loving our neighbor as ourself, or as Romans one put it, not giving God all the glory and all the thanks. So in other words, if you're not a Christian, you're always going to choose yourself and your own self goals over God. But but if you are a Christian and you're struggling with sin, one of the big things here is that you have forgotten who you are. See, in my mind, it's troubling, but I see it exist in our world today. It's troubling that you could even ask the question. Have you thought about that? It's troubling that you could even ask the question, should I continue in sin? Because at the very nature of this question would be. I want my cake and I want to eat it, too. Or. God's holding out on me. God's not enough for me. So I want these little sin patterns because these sin patterns are good and fun and it's what everybody else is doing you see that dichotomy so even asking this question and and hear me hear me out if you have lived in this Christian world long enough you come across many people who live their lives saying I'm under grace therefore don't worry about my sin I listened to this whole radio show the other day where they were talking about uh, a sin that a student uh, committed and was kicked out of her school because those were the rules in the class. And I was just blown away by the callers who were calling in, defending, saying God's a God of grace. And I believe that with everything that's in me. But what they were doing is they were saying this. So we continue in sin. Brothers and sisters. Not only does our union with Christ kill our sin nature and its mastery over us and enable us to live in the newness of life. But our union with Christ also makes us think about sin the way our Lord thinks about sin. And that's why I think he can add this emphatic, may it never be. How in the world can you be comfortable as a Christian with sin in your life? Because we hate it. Jesus and I hate it. Now. It is fitting that we are having communion today. Because not only does our baptism is that, not only is that a symbol of our union with Christ and a renaming ceremony. Now we're only baptized once. We don't do that over and over and over again. But in communion why do we meet? Why do we, why do we meet and, and take of communion other than to realize and to remember our union with our Lord and Savior so that when we take the bread and we eat it, we do this in remembrance of Him and what He has done for us. When we drink His blood, we do it in remembrance of Him and what He has done for us. And that through that symbol, we are acknowledging that we are unified with Christ and with one another as his people. And so what I'm going to have happen is uh, if I can have the deacons that are going to serve communion just come forward.